Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dear Katie, where survivors of sexual assault, rape, and abuse share their stories from hurt to healing. I'm your host, Katie Kessner. When I was age 18, I appeared on the cover of Time Magazine to speak out nationally and really internationally as a victim of acquaintance rape. And since then, I've dedicated my entire life, my career, all of my energy to helping survivors and really raising awareness around sexual assault, ultimately to end sexual violence in all forms. In this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories, Claire Kaplan and I speak with a woman whose experience compelled her to organize an entire movement on her campus demanding a stronger administrative response to sexual violence. It's a classic college student nightmare going to a party with friends and you had all agreed on a safety plan and then only wound up being drugged and raped anyway, despite the entire plan. And even worse, when she disclosed, reported her a situation to her school administrators, the school's response was not at all helpful. Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. Welcome to all of our listeners. We know that the contents of this podcast can be emotionally difficult. We also encourage you to care for your safety and well-being. So please reach out to friends, family, or even a hotline for support. Additional resources can be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. We will share that address with you toward the end of our podcast. Thank you so much, Claire. Today, we are so pleased to have with us Jean. Um, Jean, welcome. I am ex- excited to share your story, your journey, and your vision for healing and hope to all of our followers, our listeners, our s- subscribers. Um, so if it would be comfortable for you, I think it would be helpful to hear a little bit about who you are, where you are, and what you've ex- um, you know, experienced. So let's start with the narrative of who you are and what, you know, what, what passions you have. Sure. So I am a student at Bremer College and I am a huge dog lover, although I have to admit I'm a bit of a traitor and I do have two kittens at home. Um, They're waiting for me and I look forward to all the snuggles over break. I also, I love to play soccer. Um, I'm an athlete here at Bremer College. I'm on our varsity soccer team. And I take any opportunity I can to get outside. Perfect. So, Jean, so you're a first year at your college, and you get invited as a first year soccer player, amazing star, to a party off campus, right? Yes. How did you get invited, and who did you expect to be there, and how did it come by your way that you were invited? Yes. So I was hanging out with some of my friends, you know, the soccer and field hockey teams hang out together a lot. So I was with some of my friends on the field hockey team. Uh, I guess it was a Saturday night and they were invited by the guy, some guys on the Haverford lacrosse team that had an off-campus apartment. They invited my two friends and then they were like, oh, well, if you want to bring anybody else, like, that's fine. So see so you the appendage. <laughs> Your friends got invited. You were like, oh, let's come along, correct? Yes. Okay. So how did your friends reach out to you? Instagram or directly or talk to you? We were, I was literally sitting there when they got the, I think it was over Snapchat that he invited them. So they they turned to you and say, hey, do you want to come? And so ended up, how many of you went? Three of us. 
So you and you were the add-on. They were the invites. Yes. So you go to the party, Haverford. How far away? How do you get there? Do you Uber? What What's the transport? We Ubered over. The apartment was in Suburban Square, which is, I guess, maybe two miles from our campus and maybe a mile from Haverford's campus. So we Ubered over, and it was a really awkward Uber ride. All, all three of you Uber over. You, you yep. get out. You go in. How many people are there? You open the door to the apartment, and what happens? There's loud music. How many people? So we get there, and the music's actually not that loud because it's an apartment in a building with, you know, actual rules. So it was funny to see, like, this college party with probably 15 girls and five guys. Wow, that's a great ratio, 15 to 5. Okay, so you walk in, and you three enter, you're adding to the ratio, right? It's already 15 to 5, and you're now 18 to 5. Yeah, I think so. Gotcha. Okay, so you walk in, and tell us the setup. So we walk in, and um, right in front of me was the kitchen area with the kitchen island. And on the kitchen island, there it was like a guy and a girl, and then another guy and another girl were playing against each other in beer pong. So they had, you know, cups set up on either side of the island, red solo cups. I think they were just playing with water, no beer. Everybody was drinking either mixed drinks that they had, like, made themselves, or the guys were offering cans of, like, cheap beer. I think it was Bud Light, but I have to say I was a little bit insulted by the cheap beer. (laughs) You can be always insulted by cheap beer, <laughs> especially when you had already paid for your Uber. So, hey, you already paid your price. Right. If you're going to bring me over here, at least let it be good beer. Yep. we got to have good stuff. Right. Okay. So, you, now you're, you walk in and what happens with your wing women and you? How do you negotiate the whole scene? So, pretty quickly... The guy that invited my friends came over. I was introduced, but I didn't need to be introduced because I already knew who he was. Because this particular Haverford lacrosse player, I had been warned about by a couple of my teammates and some other older students at Bryn Mawr. A really clear heads up, this guy is dangerous. He roofies and rapes women. You should be careful. So I shake hands with him, which was gross. And he offered me a beer and I thought, you know, what the hell might as well. So, you know, I crack my beer and I'm proud of myself because I'm following the rules. I've gotten to a college party and I'm only drinking something that I'm watching myself open. You know, I'm doing the things that you're supposed to do to be safe. Right. And then what happens, Jean? So then I'm bored and grumpy because the music is awful. And I notice that one of the guys that's there has his hands all over one of the girls that I was there with, one of my friends. And so I chose to put my body in between him and her because it was very clear from her body language that she was uncomfortable. And it was also clear to me that she was way too drunk to be able to navigate the situation adequately. And for all of our listeners, here's where you go, oh, And Jean went to bystander intervention class. (laughs) Wow. 
need to ask a quick question. I know you want to get going, but it's, did they actually give you a class or do a workshop in bystander intervention when you first arrived? Yeah, so, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's brilliant, Claire. They gave us a class on bystander intervention, but it pretty explicitly said, don't put yourself at risk. And I think that <laughs> putting your body in between a handsy man and a woman. That's major. You're like, Going, you went way and above. Yeah, but it depends. Yeah, it depends. But that's sort of like, you know, saying, um, you know, doing sex ed, modern sex ed, which is don't get pregnant, it'll you'll die. Right. But it doesn't actually tell you how to prevent from getting pregnant. Yeah. So I'm doing this and he gets pissed, walks away, whatever. She's just drunk and confused. So I said, let's play beer pong. Like, let's give you something to do. So we are playing beer pong together now against this was funny against two girls from Villanova so keep in mind at this party there are Bryn Mawr students there are Haverford students and there are Villanova students so if one campus has an issue yeah that's the girls the guys and the Catholics we're in trouble <laughs> big time <laughs> it's really exemplary though that you know if one school has an issue like it affects every other school in the area so my friend and I are playing beer pong and she, one of the cups like tips over and spills whatever liquid it was. I don't know if it was beer or water anymore at this point because they change depending on who's playing and who wants to be drinking. So if the boys are playing, it'll be water because they don't want to get too drunk. But if the girls are playing, they need to play with beer so that they can be tougher, which is really just code for get more drunk. So liquid spills on my friend and I, you know, grab the paper towels from across the kitchen island, like help her clean it up. And in this time, I had set down this can of beer that I've been nursing the whole time we've been there next to my other friend's can of beer who. So this was the person that was actually invited to the party, like directly. And she had been flirting with the guy who invited her all night long. This is the guy who is like a known problem on both campuses. So we turn around and we're just focused on getting our friend not soaked with water or beer, whatever it was. And so I go back to the game, I finish my drink and you know, 10, probably 10 minutes later, I am not feeling particularly well, like kind of dizzy, but like, uh, maybe I'm just tired, whatever. So I go sit down and the next thing I know, the guy that I had been like cock blocking comes and sits down next to me and like he puts his hand on my leg and I was like you've got to be kidding me like this is what they think is attractive so he's got his hand on my leg he's like flirting with me and then he asks if I want to go take a shot of tequila I love tequila so I have this tequila shot offered to me and I'm like oh hell yeah like I love tequila so and I mean I've had a beer so I could do another tequila shot to get me through the rest of the night so god these this is where the memories get hard to get to but I feel confident that I remember being handed a shot of tequila, normal shot glass, like not a giant one or anything. And he had one as well. So this is the guy that had his hands all over my friend. So I didn't really like him after witnessing that. And when he came over and sat down next to me, I was almost grateful because that way I knew like I had my eye on him and he wasn't going to go, like do anything to somebody else. And then of course I'm going to take a shot of tequila. Thank you. However, I was also like, Oh, I can now get him further away from women for a little while. Oh, perfect. Like this is a good situation. 
So essentially, you were there with the idea that you were protecting your friends and without thinking that you might have actually been a target of his. You were like distracting him, in other words. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And this, like this, I thought was fine because this is not the guy that I'd been warned about. I was like, I mean, I know they're friends, but like really thinking in my head, logically, how many people are horrible enough to rape somebody? How many people are that twisted? More than you would think. And they do flock together. So the last thing I remember is holding a shot of tequila. And this is kind of where, so I have um, like somatic memories or somatic experiences, which for anybody who hasn't heard of them before, they're pretty rare, but very common with people who have, people who are survivors of like domestic violence of any kind. And they're very common with people who black out. So the assumption is that I was roofied. The further assumption from my somatic experiences that fill in these blanks is that I was raped because I, you know, I have these really vivid, like physical sensations of like hands on my back, on my shoulders, on my like legs, inner thigh. Like I have vivid, like feeling, like physical feelings of like penetrative sex and the emotions that are attached to that are horrible and they're overwhelming and they just like come on sometimes. Like literally the other day I was driving down the road listening to one of my favorite songs and I stopped at a red light and the next thing I know I'm like having a panic attack in my car. And it's not always like horrible somatic experiences. Sometimes it's just, you know, the feeling of hands on my back. But because of those feelings and a lot of therapy, I feel pretty confident that in the time, God, it's even hard to say it on a podcast where I know I'm believed. I know that in the time that after I'd taken that shot of tequila, I was raped. And the next thing I remember is being in the bathroom with the two girls that I was there with. I guess I'd thrown up and they were like, it's fine. It's fine. Everybody drinks too much sometimes. And I said, no, like, that's not the issue. Like, I'm I'm fucking leaving. Like, I'm not going to be here anymore. Y'all should leave. Too. I'm going to get an Uber. Like, let, let me, let's just get an Uber. Like, we can go home. And they're like, no, no, like, we're having fun. Like, you go. Sleep tight. Like, take care of yourself. Make sure you, you know, drink some water before bed. Like, I hope you don't wake up too hungover. And I was like, no, lit, like, it's not whatever. I didn't even have the energy. And mm-hmm. I've never felt like that before. I've never felt so exhausted and hot and cold and dizzy and the blurry vision it it was awful so order an uber kind of patchy memories getting downstairs but i do know that the guy that i was specifically told to watch out for took us downstairs and i waited for an uber my uber never came i wound up calling one of my friends to come get me thank god for her coming to get me or else i don't It was like 3 a.m. I have no idea what I would have done without her. But when I got in her car, she said that I seemed fine. I was just kind of drunk, but like mostly just tired. And I don't remember any of the car ride back. So when I got back to school, and this I think is actually the worst part because I remember it. I was laying in bed. I was sweating, but I was freezing. I was dizzy. I was seeing everything was black, but then I'd get like, outlines of white for like the things that were in my room it was bizarre I thought I was dying so then I texted um one of my close friends and I said like I think I'm too drunk like I think I need to pull trig which is make make yourself throw up 
Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I feel awful. And she said, like, what bathroom are you at? Like, I'm coming. So we're in the bathroom. I can't make myself throw up. There is nothing for me to throw up because crazy thought, I wasn't too drunk. And so she sat with me. And when we got back in my room, I laid in her lap and cried for hours. And she just sat there and held me while I I just sobbed and sobbed. And she said, gee, what happened there? Like, what happened to you there? And I remember saying, I don't know, are, like, the friends that I went with okay? And the next morning, I woke up with, like, the world's worst hangover, which I did some Googling. That is one of the major side effects of um, being roofied. I have two questions and I'm sure Claire has a couple more. So just take your time. One, epiphany. Oh, you'll be fine. This happens. Yeah, no, that's, that's what I remember. Take the pain of being sexually abused slash raped slash molested slash objectified all of the above. Just this is status quo still is what the stamp which they, your friends, were willing to put on your forehead. That's what I heard you say, and I was like, wow, that's where we are? Yeah. Well, and what's overwhelming is that they didn't know that I had been sexually assaulted in any way until very recently. They really thought that either, A, nothing had happened to me, or B, maybe I got roofied, but they didn't really see that as that big of a deal. And the more we've talked and we've had some really constructive conversations where all of us are on the same page now of, holy shit, that's not okay. But in the moment, I mean, they were both really drunk. They were in party mode. They didn't know what the hell was going on. And I think it's really interesting that the first response that I would think most people probably would have is like, it's going to be okay. We're going to deal with it. It's going to be fine. When like, this is the one situation in your life where you need somebody to look at you and be like, this is not okay. And you're probably not okay. And that is fine. I think that it's very hard. I It, it points out to me something that, and, and tell me, um, Jean, if this resonates with you, but we have this expectation of young adults to, know what to do, even if we give them a, a one hour, you know, one off on bystander intervention or maybe two hours or three. But when when alcohol goes in to expect them to act like adults, and what does that mean? Actually, yeah. you know, adults can be pretty screwed up. So but to 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 do the right thing is in quotes. But that's very hard to do, isn't it? It is really hard to do. And what I think makes it even harder is that in bystander intervention trainings, you're taught one set of rules. However, in the rest of your life, you're trained with a different set. Uh, and what are those rules? What's the different? What are the two different rules that you're talking about? In bystander intervention, you know, you get a lot of like, you always need to stand up for people. You always need to be there for people, you know, believe survivors. That's like the biggest one, right? Is like believe people. If somebody thinks that something might've happened, encourage them to report. But then in real life, you know, reporting is hard and miserable and difficult. And when you talk about going to report what happened to you to title nine, people tell you, you know, think long and hard before you do that. Or one response I got was, well, are you sure it happened to you? And like, that is literally the last thing you're, supposed to say according to Mm -hmm. bystander intervention but the whole world doesn't believe or value 
the words of people who aren't men. Aha, uh -huh. that's right. It's my historically women's college education coming out a little bit there. Mm -hmm. I love when you said my historically women's college. A women's college, has it served you? What would you change and how? I am so glad that you asked that. Actually, right now, myself and some of my close friends are working on advocating for an expanded Title IX program for both Bryn Mawr and Haverford because we, along with lots of other survivors on campus, feel like Bryn Mawr and Haverford, but Bryn Mawr, have massively failed to meet any of the needs of people who have dealt with sexual assault or harassment of any kind, whether it's, you know, inadequate counseling or massive victim blaming. I mean, I've gotten some exceptionally victim blaming emails. And so what we're doing right now is we have collected so many resources and so much information, which is actually how I found my way to you. So thankful for this group of girls who has lit the fire underneath me to kind of take this on. But I recently had a meeting with our Dean of Students where we talked about uh, adopting an expanded Title IX protocol for Bryn Mawr College, where it'll lay out from beginning to end what will happen when somebody reports an instance of sexual harassment or violence. And I ask that myself and some other students can be a part of developing this plan because we all know that federal Title IX litigation is inadequate. And I feel really strongly that as a historically women's college, Bridmar has both the responsibility and the privilege to care for and empower students to enter an oppressively male-dominated world. Yes, that, that's a really wonderful way of framing that because what you're saying is that, that women's colleges in particular, not just Bryn Mawr, but similar, you know, co women's colleges, one, they already have the reputation of being this, but they don't necessarily meet that reputation. So you can, as students, can hold, that, hold the mirror up to them yeah. and say, look at yourselves. And it sounds like they may be responding. I mean, as, am I right in understanding that, that they're actually responding in a positive way? Yes, it has, it has taken me some pretty aggressive emails, but their response has now been surprisingly receptive. And I'm, I'm actually honestly very excited to move forward. At the same time, I'm really angry um, and I, I said this in my meeting with Dean of Students, I said, as angry as I am for how horrendously Bryn Mawr has failed students for years, I am also that excited to move forward and put in place a system where students can maybe start to feel safe again on our absolutely beautiful and perfectly wonderful college campus. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And you have, you have, given that it hasn't been that long for you, you are such a powerful advocate, Jean. This is, you know, it's your passion. And I guess, uh, the word, I'm thinking stick-to-itiveness, but that's such an awkward phrase. But persistence, that's it. Your persistence in fighting this and getting them to listen, um, is so impressive. I have to tell you, it's, it's so easy to give up when people are, you know, in these giant administrative walls are put up against you. Well, thank you for acknowledging that. I I think that I've read a lot actually about survivors having like a I don't want to say a complex, but this like this need to make sure that the same thing isn't going to happen to people or that if it does they'll be taken care of better. And I found so much power 
in the people that I've met lately just because of life and life puts you in touch with people when you need it, I guess. But I felt very empowered knowing too that like other survivors care and other survivors want this change made. They just may not be in the place to do it yet. And since I feel that I am, I'm more than happy to kind of carry that torch. Well, it sounds like you have some of those skills to do it. What what sets you apart from other survivors? Did you kind of grow up in a family where, you know, you learned how to do that kind of thing? Or you know, what is it? Because some people, you know, just, you know, when they're two years old, their parents are taking them on protest marches. I don't know if you grew up in that kind of family, but the idea that, that it sounds like you are an advocate at heart, you know, and you take what happened to you and you turn it into something. And it's true. Many survivors find that advocating for others is a, is a way of part of their healing process. It's very common, but you would seem to be very effective at this and you're also not giving up. And it doesn't sound like you, I know you probably felt anger or feel anger, but you don't sound bitter. And that's interesting to me. Yeah. I think that, well, first it's important to acknowledge that I think my mom might be the singular, the single most empowered woman on the entire face of the earth. Nothing gets in the gets in between my mom and what she wants to get done. And the second most empowered woman I think I've I'll ever encounter is my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom. So I come from a bit of a line of powerful women. And also I have the kindest and most supportive father. So together my parents have kind of just formed this force behind me. But I think that also at Bryn Mawr, like the community that I am a part of and the friend groups that I have found myself in, I really believe because it's been shown to me time and time again that these women will do anything to have my back. My friends will do anything to support me. So when I said, you know, I'm really frustrated with the way that things have been handled and I want to do something about it, they were like, all right, like what would feel good to you? Like, what do you think is best? I also have, I spent my entire life like smart and athletic and gifted and, you know, all of the things. And then I get to college and I'm sexually assaulted and I am immediately diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and eating disorder and PTSD. This summer, I spent a month in eating disorder treatment and I came out of treatment with this like extensive knowledge of therapy because when you do therapy all day, like, you know, you do therapy all day and you learn a lot. But I also met so many survivors in treatment that I feel deeply connected to each of them. And I want to kind of honor their legacy in a way moving forward. I, it sounds so kitschy, but I kind of feel like I have their strength as well. Well, you raise a really important issue. It's sort of a tangential thing, but you say you met so many survivors in treatment. And it's come up a couple of times in in various podcasts, but we really haven't gone into it much in depth. But so many survivors do struggle with eating some kind of form of, of eating disorder or unhealthy eating in some way. What was, was that a surprise to you to see that when you went into treatment? It was at first, but the longer I was there, the more clear it became that when you are physically so violated, it's really hard to have a positive relationship with your body. And it also, like, eating disorders provide control. And when control is so aggressively stripped from you, you'll take it in any form you can get. If I could add to the conversation, Claire and Jean, this is so powerful. And we haven't really talked about this, Jean, with our 
listeners, if you're willing, share whatever you're comfortable with. How do we step away from that? And if you have the micro analysis in the mirror, I'll say that. And then second, that's that's the looking in the mirror. And then second to that is being willing to be touched and what kind of touch is helpful. And so those are my two questions, Jean. How do we find solace in the skin we're in, looking in the mirror, thinking about it? And then how do we find any reward or help in the touch we receive from any any other being? I think that I really struggle looking in the mirror. Actually, my roommate and I have two mirrors in our room and I have one of them covered because looking in the mirror is just really hard. What I find some peace in is knowing that my body exists physically in the way that it does to do the things that I love to do. And I also have gotten into the habit of when I'm like nitpicking myself or like, oh, you look fat in that. It's always, it's, that's always what I tell myself is like, am I really fat? Or, you know, are my hips the size of a watermelon? Like, or, you know, like being very much neutral. I also kind of think that body neutrality is bullshit because it sounds like such a great idea, but it's so hard. I love it. Like, oh, hey, Dove campaign. Love yourself. The savior in. Right. Like, I, I don't. But there, the fact is, is that I bought this really cool pumpkin at the farmer's market. And my thigh is the same width as that pumpkin. And that pumpkin is cool. So I guess my legs can continue to exist as well. Let's go for pumpkin. Right. Right. And, like, that's helpful, actually, because I, I'm in the habit of doing it. But what I hear you doing, Jean, which is brilliant, is debunking the commercial message, right? Uh, is insurmountable. What is the right beauty standard? What's the right campaign that some corporation is pushing out of us, whether it be Dove or Revlon or, you know, the the, the TikTok routine? I, I, I almost think it's... It's overwhelming. I'm a gush of a huge deluge of waterfall. God, I love hearing you share. It makes me feel so much less alone. And I, we are, in fact, in it together. I think, I think that yeah. moving forward is hard but not impossible. How are we going out? get out from the waterfall there to, you know, right there. Like, let me hold your hand. Let me just pick you up. Right. Let's find uh, like what, cause should we go to snake river and the Amazon? Like where, where should we go? I want some other planet. Right. Is there a new planet yet? And you know, I found actually that maybe part of the reason why I'm able to do a lot of the advocacy that I'm trying to do is because I I can, it's easier to do for other people than it is for myself. You know, like I can look at my friends who are survivors and I I want to pick them up out of the waterfall and carry them out. And I can find the energy to do that, even when I can't find the energy to get myself up. Maybe isn't the most mentally healthy option, but it's powerful and it speaks to the connection that survivors have with each other. A hundred percent, Jean. But and since I feel like we're having a little dialogue, may I share another part of my journey? Since you are 19, and remember, I spoke out at age 18. So I, like you, did the same. I was like, okay, 
I can't fix my rape. My rapist is never going to retire from possibly raping more people. I cannot control justice. I cannot control my civil rights. I can't even control the fact that my parents don't support me. But what I hear you and I both saying for our listeners, I hear us saying, you, like I, wanted to handhold other survivors. We are handholding and we're supporting and we're lifting up with our best support. But at the end of the day, we all have to lie horizontal and find solace for ourselves. And Jean, like you, I've always wrestled with the same question. I've found empowerment with helping others. And so apparently have you. But we can't always be the rescuers because at the end of the day, we still have to help us. Jean, I, I hear you. I hear Claire. We still have to find a way to help our giving, beautiful souls that want to help others. We're all in it together. We want to help. But ultimately, we have to heal our own selves. Jean, last question. How do you heal you? Not just helping others. How do you, how do you, or what's your vision if it's not happening yet? Because kind of I actually think you haven't done it yet. You haven't healed you. I, I don't care if you're eating cookie dough. <laughs> you know, cookie dough is great. I would like to scarf up as much as possible. But cookie dough is not going to be a long-term solution. Well, maybe could I help it by asking, sort of reframing a question? Where would you like to be one year from now? One year from now, I think the first thing that popped into my head was I'd like to be comfortable being alone. I find that that's something that I haven't really been comfortable with since being assaulted. And I'd like to find myself in a situation where I can easily prioritize what is best for me. You're an athlete. Is there anything, athletes who compete at the college level are, you know, they have to be pretty good athletes. Are there particular skills that you have gained as an athlete that you have employed in your recovery process at all? Or you're finding, is there anything that you're finding useful? You know, one that I hate, but I love, you'll see why I say that is because I, I hate asking for help and I hate leaning on other people. But one of my teammates said, Jean, how do you expect to win a soccer game with one player on the field? You cannot do that. And I was like, well, of course not. Like, duh, you need 11 people for soccer. And she said, okay, well, in order for you to heal, you need a team. What a brilliant comment. Yeah. So I think that the biggest thing that sports are great, but the biggest thing that sports has given me is this deep understanding that as human beings, we need other human beings simply to exist. And that's okay, and that is not weak, and that just is how it is. And it's really kind of beautiful, actually. It, it certainly is. It's a good thing you're not in an individual sport. Because <laughs> that would be a whole different thing. But, um, but yes, certainly as you are a member of a team and you could not play alone, right? You depend on all your teammates to get that ball to the goal and to win the game. And it's interesting because that's a great philosophy to have for life, really. And I and I would love I would love to check back with you in a year and see where you are if you've it's sort of reached that goal of being able to be alone 
because that's you know it seems like such a simple request but it's it's really hard you know when you're struggling with trauma so i i do hope you reach that goal i also wonder if there's anything any wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners oh god any one or two small things that's a hard one what wisdom have you gained so far well i mean the old you're stronger than you think is just so true. I mean, everything that I've encountered, I never thought that I would. And whether or not you handle things the way that you thought you would or the way that you wanted to, trust and believe that you did your best at the time. And that is more than good enough. Because I always thought that if I was in a situation where I was raped or going to be raped, that I would fight back and it would never happen to me. But I didn't and I couldn't. And it happened. And I'm dealing with it and I'm moving forward and I'm still here. Wow. Yes, you are. But that's yeah, brilliant. You're right. Mo- nobody expects this to happen to them. Nobody does. I do have a final question. Sometimes I, I fear our, our subscribers, our listeners on the brink. Some of them are on the brink of, I can't do it anymore. What would you say to them? Like, what, what, why, why should they keep going? Number one, because I've been there. And not only have I been there, but I found that there's always a moment that makes life worth living just kind of like right after you needed it most, which is inconvenient. But like I have become really close friends with some of the first years on my hall and they're so funny. They've become like my little children and I love them so much and like they're worth it to me or, you know, the connections that you will make with people. I also think that watching my own growth over such a short period of time is worth continuing on because if you're going to continue surviving after something like this happens to you, you're going to grow and watching your own growth is the most incredible thing. Thanks so much. Um, Claire, I leave it to you to round out the conversation. Jean, you've been amazing. Claire, anything else? Jean has, um, other than blowing me away, has um, answered my questions. And I'm sure I'll think of others in the future, but past this podcast. So thank you so much for sharing your story, for being willing to come and speak to us when it hasn't been that long. It's, you know, it's still 2021. And sharing how you are fighting a system to gain justice for others as well as for yourself, and that you've gained some wisdom even in this time and I know you'll have gain, you'll gain more in the process down the road. So thank you again for sharing that with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. So I will round out with our, our listeners, our subscribers. This has been another Dear Katie podcast. Thank you so much for all of us joining together to support Jean, her narrative, her journey, Her honesty and transparency is so powerful. And I turn to Claire with our closing comments. We are so grateful to all of you who have joined us to listen and learn, no matter your reason for being here. This podcast is for everyone from all walks of life. For support, please visit our resources listed on the tapebackthenight.org website, where you can tune in to our upcoming events, and gain access to our free legal hotline. Self-care is self-love. Thank you for joining another episode of the Dear Katie podcast. We look forward to welcoming all of our survivors, supporters for another episode in the coming week. Please continue to take good care of yourself. 
Together we will shatter the silence and end the violence. We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners. And thank you for our survivors, wherever you are, for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength, and healing. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.